Well, good evening. It's a privilege to be together again. It's, it has been a blessing uh, on the part of Arlita and I to be here with you this week. Uh, I told Louie and Ryan before, it's, it's, uh, it has been a blessing for me to be able to get into a congregation like this and to get to know you, see how you do things. Uh, and that uh, just broadens, broadens our uh, perspective. So I, I just want to thank you for your hospitality. Uh, and uh, I just want to encourage you to, to be faithful. There's enough work for all of us to do. And so let's, uh, let's get behind the work of kingdom building and, and do it with all of our might. In the opening here, I have been looking at the, some of the names of God, and uh, we looked at the name in Genesis 1, 1, 1, in the beginning, God. And we interpret that to mean the sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe, uh, who, as the, as the Trinity, co covenanted within himself and with man to provide a redeemer. Then we looked at the name Jehovah. We understand that that is, his, that is God's name, proper name. All other names refer to his attributes uh, or his actions, but Jehovah is his name. And it was as Jehovah that God put man under moral authority. And he is always seeking the restoration of, uh, of man because of his love for him. That's all tied up in that name, uh, Jehovah, that we read most of the time in the Old Testament, cap, uh, capital L-O-R-D. Then the third was the Almighty God, El Shaddai, the one who is all-powerful, the one who is able uh, to supply all of our needs, the Almighty God. Then last evening we looked at Adonai, which is Lord Master. Uh, he is the one who, who is the final authority in our lives. Now throughout the Old Testament you'll we'll find various compound names uh, for God which reveal his special relationship to his people. Uh, for, uh, for this evening let's turn to Genesis chapter 22. Uh, this is a, the story of when God talked to Abraham, and uh, I, I should back up a little bit. You remember when Abraham was 75 years old, God promised him a son, and that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Time elapsed. Time got longer and longer. Uh, it wasn't until 25 years later, after all hope and after all possibility physically of, uh, of Abraham and Sarah having a child, suddenly God provided and uh, Isaac was born. And Abraham and Sarah were basking in the fulfillment of that promise. They loved that son dearly. 
But then came that night when God appeared to Abraham and said those chilling words. Take now thy son, thine only son, the son that thou lovest. There was no arguing who, it, who he was talking about. And uh, take him to a mountain that I will show you of, and there offer him for a burnt offering. We understand that Abraham got up the next morning, packed his bags, and left. Traveled three days. They got to the foot of the mountain, and he left his young men there and told them, I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come to you again. I just love that phrasing. Uh, so he and Isaac were headed up the mountain. Isaac had been with him often in, uh, in the offering of the sacrifices. He knew what, what happened. And he turned to his father and he said, Father, here we have the wood and we have the fire, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham replied, uh, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. In my mind's eye, I see Abraham building that altar and Isaac assisting him in that. And finally, Abraham had to tell Isaac uh, <clears throat> of God's request. I imagine Abraham telling Isaac that of all the promises that God had, uh, had given to him, and how he, Isaac, was the son of promise to them. And that his birth was a miracle in itself. He probably explained that he expected God to raise him back to life. But he was committed to following God's request. Then he bound Isaac, laid him on the altar, and uh, raised the knife to, to kill him. And at that moment... Verse 11, the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And he said, lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thy only son, from me. Then Abraham saw that ram caught in a thicket behind and he and Isaac prepared that ram for the sacrifice. And it says, in uh, Abraham, in verse 14, And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. The significance of this name is, uh, is bound up in the meaning of Jehovah. The, uh, the God of revelation, the eternal, self-existent one, the one who, was, who, uh, who had the moral attributes of righteousness and holiness and love. The word gyra is a Hebrew word usually translated to see, which is why it's translated here, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. But it's also translated from time to time to provide. We put that together 
uh, we can say that in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen how God will provide. Consider uh, Abraham and Isaac walking up that mountain and Isaac um, turned and asked his father where the lamb was and Abraham had replied, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And as they were building that, uh, that altar, I'm sure Abraham was wondering, where is that lamb going to come from? Uh, he was sure of the promise. He knew Isaac was the fulfillment. And so somehow God was going to either provide a lamb or raise him back to life. But on the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen how God will provide. God did provide a substitute for Isaac. And I'm sure it was so meaningful to Abraham, but oh so prophetic as well. Many years later, uh, this site where they offered this sacrifice became the scene of another confrontation between God and man. We find that in uh, 1, Chronicles, uh, 1 Chronicles 21. The story there is that Satan moved David to number Israel, which God had commanded them not to do. And uh, God sent Gad, his prophet, to reprimand David. And God gave David three choices. You, have, uh, you, have three, you can have either three years of famine, uh, three months for the sword of his enemies to, be, to overtake him, or three days of the, of the sword of the Lord. I'm going to read uh, verses uh, 13 to 18 of uh, 1 Chronicles 21, and then go over to 26 and 28. And David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let me fall now into the hand of the Lord, for very great are his mercies, but let me not fall into the hand of men. So the Lord sent pestilence upon Israel, and there fell of Israel 70,000 men. And God sent an angel unto Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was destroying, the, the Lord beheld, and he repented him of the evil, and said to the angel that destroyed, It is enough, stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, and David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord stand between the earth and the heaven, having a drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders of Israel, who were clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. And David said unto God, Is it not I that commanded the people to be numbered? Even I it is that have, that have sinned and done evil indeed. But as for these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, Lord, I pray thee, let thy hand, I pray thee, O, my, o Lord my God, be on me and on my father's house, but not on thy people, that they should be plagued. Then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and set up an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Let's go over to verse 26. And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called upon the Lord and he answered him from heaven by fire upon the altar of burnt offering. 
And the Lord commanded the angel, and he put up his sword again into the sheath thereof. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, then he sacrificed there. Centuries later, not centuries, many decades later, uh, this place became the site of uh, Solomon's temple. And many years later than that, uh, Mount Moriah became the greatest scene of redemption that the world has ever seen when the Lamb of God was offered for our sins. This time there was no ram in the thicket, but Jesus gave his life as our substitute. Uh, we deserve to die for our sins, but because of God's great love, uh, Jesus took our place. And today we can enjoy peace with God, the presence of his Holy Spirit, victory over sin in the presence, and the promise that someday we're going to be free from sin completely in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ for all of eternity. Jehovah Jireh, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen how God will provide. Okay, at this time let's uh, sing number 495 in our uh, songbook. This evening I want to bring a, a message uh, about some of the glories that await God's people. This we've, week we've talked a lot about the struggles that we face as believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, the Christian life is not an easy life. Spiritual warfare is real and war is never pretty. But the hope of the resurrection is what carries us through. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most, most miserable. We have the hope in Christ. It's life eternal. Later in, chapter, uh, in that chapter, in verse 32, he said, If after the manner of men I have fought with the beast at Ephesus, what advantageth it me? If the dead rise not, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What's the point in all of the struggle if we're just going to die like a dog? But then in verses 51 and fit to 54, he gives that great assurance of the resurrection. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump and so forth. We're going to look at that a bit later. But it's a mystery, something that we don't understand completely. But in the book of Revelation, we are given glimpses of what awaits us. And uh, there are a few things about Revelation that we can know of certainty. Uh, and one of those is that we shall see his face. Uh, you know, God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. But we can't see him. You know, like I see you. 
We see what he does, yes, but we don't see him. Revelations chapter 20 and 22, we find the, the, uh, the climax of God's dealing with mankind. And so by way of opening, I would like to read just, uh, just a couple portions of that. Uh, beginning at Revelation 21, read verses 9 to 12 and then jump over to 21. Then we'll read the first five verses of chapter 22. And there came unto me, uh, I should say, Revelation 21, verse 9. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Let's go over to 21. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, Every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. Down to 22, verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve them. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads, and there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither the light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Here we have the final and crowning blessing of one who has been obedient to God, and they shall see his face. Now, to understand the context of that blessing, we need to go all the way back to Genesis. Uh, we know the story of the creation and the fall of man. Uh, in that story, there's one scene that I, I want to look at here in the beginning, and that is verse, uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 8, and they heard the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. We know that they met with God regularly. Consider the scene that this portrays. We get the impression that this wasn't something unusual, that it happened on a regular basis. The picture we get is of friendly, open communication. Uh, it reminds me of the visiting that used to take place on the front porch after chores were done and friends would come and visit. 
the older folks would sit there and talk, and we children would be out playing together. They were great times. Uh, we would look each other in the face and visit. That was the kind of communion that Adam and Eve had with God, friendly, open, face-to-face -face communication. But something happened that marred that scene. Sin entered the picture. Satan, you remember, uh, Eve was there in the center of the garden, and uh, Satan entered and planted that seed of doubt. Hath God said, Surely you shall not die, but he knows that the day you eat of that, you shall be like God, seeing good and evil. He planted the seed of doubt in Eve's mind, and that seed of doubt sprouted and grew into the plant of unbelief and quickly bore the fruit of disobedience. In the latter end of verse 3, and Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Suddenly, that open face-to-face -face communication was over. Just as a naughty child cannot look his father in the face, neither could Adam and Eve look God in the face. They hid themselves. Their punishment was death and separation from God. They were cast out of that beautiful garden that had been their home, that place where they enjoyed that face-to-face -face communication. Can you imagine how alone they felt? And they literally were alone. Even their relationship was marred. I, I can imagine them arguing over who was to blame. Uh, it was the bitter end to such a beautiful relationship. And it would have been the end. They would have died. But God. God so loved these people that he created. And so even in the middle of the pronouncement of judgment, he provided the hope of a redeemer. Someone who could bridge the gap between a sinful God and a holy, a sinful people and a holy God, excuse me. But sinful man could never again see the face of God. Just how large this gap was is revealed in Genesis 6 verse 5. How, how large it became. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We know the story. There was that flood. Uh, and uh, the world was wiped out the world of men, all except eight people. One would think that that would have fixed the problem. But it's only 100 or 200 years later that we have man standing up again in rebellion to God uh, at the Tower of Babel. We know that during that period of time, there was communication between God and man. 
We know about Enoch. It says he walked with God. And uh, he was not because God took him. Now, we don't understand all, all that communication, but he walked with him. God talked to Noah and gave him instructions for the ark. Later, we find him giving the promise to Noah that never again would he destroy the earth with a flood. But it was never that open face-to-face -face communication that Adam and Eve experienced. It was always between a holy God and a sinful man. Later, God called Abraham. And through him, called out a people. Uh, and God began to reveal himself to them. But again, it was always between a holy God and a sinful people. Moses was a man who had communication with God like few others. He was able to move the heart of God toward his people because of his righteousness. Moses probably saw more of the glory of God than any other man. But even Moses was not allowed to view God in all of his glory. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 33. The background of this is in chapter 24, Moses and Aaron uh, and the, the 70 elders of Israel saw the Lord and lived in, in chapter 24. They saw the God of Israel and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone and as it were the body of heaven in his clearness. But it was from a distance. Shortly after, God called Moses up to the top of Mount Sinai and gave him the Ten Commandments and also the directions for the tabernacle and the tabernacle worship. He was there 40 days and 40 nights. We know what happened. The people uh, asked Aaron to make them gods because they don't know what happened to, to uh, Moses. Uh, so, we know that Moses was very angry. It says he ground the calf to powder and called the Levites, and uh, there were 3,000 of the people killed. The next day, Moses called the people together and said in verse 30, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up unto the Lord. Peradventure I shall make an atonement for you, uh, for your sin. We looked at some of this the other night. Uh, but I find that the, the confidence that God had in Moses was astounding. In verses 31 to 35 of chapter 32. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now if thou wert forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whoever hath, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Therefore now go, lead the people unto the place of which I have spoken unto thee. Behold, mine angel shall go before thee. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord plagued the people because they had made the calf which Aaron made. Uh, God had enough of the children of Israel. He said, I'm not going along. I'm not going with them. If I go with them, I'm going to destroy them. Chapter 33, we have uh, 
God gave them one more opportunity. In uh, verse 5 of 33, And the Lord said unto Moses, Say unto the children of Israel, You are sti a stiff-necked people. I will come up into the midst of thee in a moment and consume thee. Therefore now put off thy ornaments from thee, that I may know what to do with thee. And the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by the Mount Horeb. And Moses took the tabernacle and pitched it without the camp, afar off from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of the congregation. And it came to pass that everyone which sought the Lord went out unto the tabernacle of the congregation, which was without the camp. And it came to pass when Moses went up went out unto the tabernacle that all the people rose and stood every man at his tent door and looked after Moses till he was gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass as Moses entered into the tabernacle, the cloudy pillar descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle and the Lord talked with Moses. And all the people saw the cloudy pillar stand at the tabernacle door and all the people rose and worshiped every man and in his tent door. And the Lord spake to Moses face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend. Uh, but the way the picture we get is of a cloudy pillar. God descended in a cloudy pillar. And so they were talking close together, but it was not, they could not see. Uh, Moses could not see uh, God face to face. We continue on down, and we have Moses interceding for the people again, and interceding that God himself goes with them. Verse 17, And the Lord said unto Moses, uh, I should back up, uh, Verse 12, And Moses said unto the Lord, See thou sayest unto me, Bring up this people, and thou hast not let me know, know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that, that this nation is thy people. And he said, My presence shall go with thee. I will give thee rest. Verse 17. The Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. And he said, I beseech thee, show me my glory. God was there, I mean, uh, Moses was there communing with God. Uh, they were talking together. Uh, and Moses felt a communion with God like he had never felt before. And he, finally he said in verse 18, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. He wanted to see all of God. And God replied, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. No man can see the face of God here on earth and live. Having said that, 
consider the benediction that God gave Moses to bless the children of Israel. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. Here's maybe a weak illustration. Uh, but I, I used to have a dog that loved attention. Uh, that dog just ate it up with a spoon. And uh, I, uh, when I, I used to have my sawmill, uh, where I walked back and forth, I had a slab table about six feet away that I would put the slabs to be cut. And underneath that, it was uh, an open area where that was sawdust. It was a nice place for the dog to lay. It was out of the, out of the way. And as I was there working, from time to time, I'd feel somebody watching. And I would look over and catch his eye, and his tail would start wagging. He just wanted me to come and pay some attention to him. Uh, and if I didn't, he would just kind of sulk. But the blessing of, do of God is described here as having his face turned toward us. When that dog knew that my, I was looking him in the eye, there was a good chance I'd come and pay some attention to him. But the blessing of God, again, is described as his face turned toward us. In Job 33, 26, we have the promise that anyone that seeks after God will, will be blessed. He shall pray unto God, and he will be favor unto him, and he shall see... He shall see his face with joy, for he will render unto man his righteousness. Psalm 67, 1. God be merciful unto us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. The opposite is also true. The curse of God is, is described as, as having his face turned away or hid from his people. But to see the face of God to the face, the face of Jesus is the desire of all God's people. God's revelation of himself became even clearer in the New Testament in the person of Jesus Christ, God in human form. But even when Jesus was here on earth, it required faith to believe that he truly was the Son of God. He was too human. Even his disciples had difficulty believing in him. By his many miracles, he proved that he was the Messiah. His Holy Spirit then added a whole new dimension to our understanding of who God is and of his will for his people. Through his Holy Spirit, we can live victoriously over sin. But yet there is still that element of question that plagues all of us from time to time, as it did John the Baptist. Art thou he that should come, or look we for another? 2 Corinthians 5.7 describes our present situation so vividly. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Hebrews 11.6 But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Throughout the New Testament, there's a call to decision. 
Whom will ye serve, either Christ or Satan? It's also clear that there will be consequences for our choice. Are we by faith going to repent of our sins and accept the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ? Or are we going to choose to serve ourselves and Satan and be eternally damned from the presence of God in hell with Satan and his angels? But we need to accept it by faith. 1 Corinthians 13 describes it as it is. Now we see through a glass darkly. I'd like to say through binoculars in dim light. Uh, we can't see all of the details that God has in store for us, nor can we see his face. The book of Revelation is the final revelation of Jesus Christ, the final fulfillment of all things. In it, we find the final judgment of Satan and those who have chosen to follow him, as well as the re eternal reward of the righteous. Chapter 20, we have the final triumph of God over Satan, and we have the great white throne judgment uh, of all the dead, where the books are opened along with the book of life, and all men will be judged according to their works. Let's turn over to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, I'm going to read uh, start at verse 7, read to the end of the chapter. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are on the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever and I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there was no place for them and I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The complete fulfillment of uh, Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this thing, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and thus shalt thou eat all the days of thy, thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Satan bruised the heel of man when he crucified Jesus. But Jesus broke the power 
of death. But its grip is still on mankind. Finally, God breaks the grip of death on all mankind, and everyone is called into account for his actions, and Satan is cast into the eternal fires of hell. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Then, that's the final end of the wicked. Uh, their fate is sealed forever and ever. Chapter 21 and 22, we read of the eternal destination of the righteous. I'm going to read right through chapter 21 uh, to verse 5 again of uh, gen, uh, tw uh, chapter 22. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them, and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful, and unbelieving, and the abominable, and the murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, and I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was like unto a stone most precious, even a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels. And names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. And on the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square. And the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of this wall is of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. 
The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth a sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth a chrysophras, the eleventh a jacinth, the twelfth an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, neither need, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. I don't claim to understand everything in these, these chapters. I don't, I don't think we're able to understand completely because it speaks of things beyond our comprehension but we know enough we can know enough to understand that it's going to be something beautiful beyond compare uh, what this new heaven and this new earth consists of I, I don't know uh, we know that the earth and heavens as we know them are going to flee away there at the great white throne judgment. To me, it speaks of the change from this physical realm of time that we're living in to a spiritual realm, something that is more perfect and uh, real. First uh, Corinthians 15 gives the, the order of it. Let's go back to First Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 50, 1 Corinthians 15, 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. 
For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Then shall be brought... So when this uh, corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. <coughs> it's the physical first, then the spiritual. And I think that's what we're seeing or talking about when it's saying a new heavens and a new earth. Uh, what form we will take on in the resurrection, I don't know. But it takes place there in Revelation 20, verse 11. In chapter 21, we have that new heaven and the new earth coming down out of heaven, from God out of heaven. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 9, we have the angel inviting him. Uh, inviting John to see the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he showed him that great city, the New Jerusalem. We know from, from uh, other passages that the bride of Christ is the church. But here we have it described as a city. I don't know. Uh, but my dear people, we do know that God is going to be there. And we're going to see him face to face in all of his glory. By all indications, this heavenly city is the final abode of the righteous. So consider, consider the implications of that. The church, not the building, not this building, but the gathered body of believers is eternal. It will last for all of eternity. Uh, God is going to dwell in the midst of his people. There will be no more death, no, neither sorrow, nor crying, nor more, any more pain, because all of those kind of things will have passed away. None of these things can abide in the presence of a holy God who is perfect in all of his ways. Uh, these things are part of our brokenness here on earth. And that's going to pass away. In verses 11 to 21, we have the description of the holy city. Uh, I don't propose to understand what it's talking about there. Uh, in our way of thinking, you know, how can a city be a cube? 1,200 miles long, wide, and high. And yet have a wall only 216 feet high. Uh, how can each gate to this city... Be a single pearl. We never saw an oyster that big. Uh, it's, it's something, it's speaking of things that we don't understand at this point. There's something about this city that is different from the cities of this world. There's no temple there. You go into a strange city, you can soon tell about the faith of the people by the observing the places of worship. But in the New Jerusalem, there will not be any place of worship because the object of our worship will be living among us and we will see him face to face. I don't know how this is going to all happen, uh, but I do know that God's going to be there and we'll see him face to face just as Adam and Eve did there in the garden. We will be able to talk with him with no barriers, not from a distance. We can meet with him face to face. 
we can know his love in the most, infin uh, most intimate way. I love the description of the river of water flowing out from under the throne of God and of the Lamb, and then of the boulevard that leads up to the throne. And in the middle of that boulevard and on either side of the river of life will be growing the tree of life that Adam and Eve were barred from after they sinned. God had said, lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever, we'll be able to enjoy its fruit for all of eternity. Uh, it's hard to imagine. It's almost beautiful. It's, it's, it's so beautiful, it makes our hearts ache to think about it. But the most beautiful thing is, we're going to see him face to face. Face to face communication. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's going to be something beyond anything this world has, to be able to see our Savior face to face. Tonight, we understand that if we're not prepared, we will spend eternity in the most horrible place, the lake of fire in the company of the devil and his angels. Uh, but God does not want it that way. He has made, he has given us all that is necessary for life and godliness. And so I want to give one more opportunity uh, for someone who has never, uh, never made the decision to follow the Lord, or maybe you have, uh, are now living in defeat. And... Uh, need to make a recommitment of your life to, to Jesus. I want to give you the opportunity to repent of your sin, make peace with God, so you can join us in that joyous anticipation of heaven, that meeting of our Savior face to face in glory. What, will the, what shall we sing? <laughs>